If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, you're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones, and this week I'm talking to my colleague James Meek, the author of many books of both fiction and non-fiction, and a contributing editor at the LRB. He has a piece in the current issue of the paper on wind power, green jobs, and global capitalism. Hello, James, and thank you very much for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. So when I look out at an array of offshore wind turbines, I'm more likely, or I was until I read your piece, to think of all the clean electricity they're producing than of how and where the turbines themselves were produced. Hornsea 2 in the North Sea, off the Yorkshire coast, is going to be the world's biggest offshore wind farm when it goes operational next year. Could you talk us through how those towers come to be there? Where do they come from? I've always felt there was something about Britain that failed to have its imagination caught by the the sheer scale of the enterprise uh, that has been happening for a few years now, mainly in the North Sea, also in in the Irish Sea. These are incredibly difficult conditions, rough waters, extraordinary storms, massive feats of engineering involving taking gigantic cranes taller than the Eiffel Tower out into these, uh, these rough seas and erecting gigantic towers with wind turbines on top of them. This has, as I say, been happening for some years now to generate green electricity for the the renewable energy transition to, to, to get away from using fossil fuels. And the process involves really three parts of the, the wind turbine. There is the, the most complicated, most expensive part. It's called the nacelle, uh, which is the generator. But it also has a lot of gears in it, a lot of sensors. Um, it's got to be able to turn the, the blades into the wind, obviously. So that's that's a very, very high-spec piece of kit, um, a massive thing, uh, uh, much larger than a, than a truck, which has to be hoisted up into place. And onto that, obviously, you have the the, the blades, the, the three enormous blades that spin round and generate the electricity that catch the wind. The least glamorous, but actually rather, rather beautiful in its own way, uh, element of, of this is the tower, the wind tower, which makes the, the gap between the sea and the blades, which enable the, the whole thing to, to turn. It is absolutely essential but a really quite simple piece of equipment. I mean, even to call it equipment would be rather grand. It is basically an extremely large metal steel tube, uh, slightly tapering, uh, usually made in three parts, that the bottom part sits on the foundations, which I guess, strictly speaking, is a fourth part, the, the, the foundations of the, of the wind tower. And it rises up hundreds of feet into the air, and on top of that, that's where the nacelle and the blades sit. So it's it's kind of the, if you like, the dirtiest end of the the whole wind farm production line. Somewhere in the world, in many different places in the world, there are the, there are these yards using the kind of technology that uh, somebody building ships in the late nineteenth century um, or, or the early twentieth century would would recognise, taking big hunks of raw sheet steel from uh, from a steel foundry bending them on vast machines into into kind of curls and then welding these curls into into tubes it's it's hard work it's dirty work the welding is done still mainly manually and it's obviously quite a big job to move these these pieces, which weigh 100 tons plus, around the factory where they are being made, it's it's a dangerous business, and then it's a it's a difficult business to take them from the factory to the ship where they are taken to wherever it is they need they need to go. In the course of my my wanderings over the internet in uh, researching a story uh, in an area I I know almost nothing about, I it became clear to me that you could basically order online an entire kit uh, if you had several million 
pounds to spare and a, a large industrial space um, and a few score workers, then you can set up your own wind tower factory. The margins are low. The skills, without taking anything away from that, the, the, the skills of the workers involved, I, I wouldn't say anyone could do it. But yeah, I would actually say anyone could do it. Anyone okay. could do it. And and those towers at Hornsey 2 have been made in Vietnam. And you'd begin your piece describing this, this journey, or most of them have, or many of them have, describing this, the voyage that this, a German ship made from Vietnam to the Humber, bringing these pieces of tower. That's right. The towers are made by this Korean company, CS Wind, in multiple locations. The story of CS Wind began with an entrepreneur, a Korean entrepreneur called Kim Songon, who started out as a trader in, in steel factory fittings in Saudi Arabia in the 1980s, and then returned to Korea, decided to set up his own business doing the same sort of thing, uh, have his own manufacturing facility. And uh, he got to the point of making quite big objects, steel factory chimneys, when the Asian financial crisis struck uh, in the in the late 1990s. And uh, he almost went bankrupt, but he managed to stay afloat. And he was looking around for an area of growth in the um, in the world what he was looking for was something that there was still uh, an opening for somebody trying to get started on the ground floor where it was the same kind of business that he was used to namely making big simple objects out of steel and where he could leverage the possibility of cheap labor from china or vietnam that was his sort of starting point and he looked around and he thought yes these towers that they use to support wind turbines that's somewhere I could get into. I can see growth in this market. So he was quite far-sighted in that sense. But his problem was that he'd, he had no experience. He'd, he'd never made a wind tower. He had no factory of his own. He didn't really have a product to show people. All he had was his belief in himself and his insistence that I can do this. So he set up an office in LA. Nobody came. Nobody ordered anything. He had no record. Things looked bleak. And then he heard that a Danish company was building a wind farm in New Zealand. He flew to Denmark. He said, look, I can do this. And somehow he must have been an extraordinarily persuasive man. He managed to persuade this um, this Danish company that he could get subcontractors in Vietnam to build these towers for them in a, in a very short space of time, a matter of months. And, and they agreed. But um, immediately everything went wrong. The people that he who was supposed to build his towers couldn't do it. Uh, and he found himself in the space of a few months having to build a factory from scratch in Vietnam and build these towers. Even building the tower as uh, building the factory as the factory was making the things that the factory was designed to build. So it was sort of build one bit of the factory, roll the, uh, the steel into, into these curls build the next bit of the factory, make the, the steel into pipes and so on. Uh, and while all this was going on, a hurricane struck and uh, the factory was almost destroyed. So not surprisingly, the contract was a complete failure. He missed his deadline. And um, somehow, again, a sign that this is an extraordinarily persuasive individual. He managed to persuade the Danes to give him more time to do the work. And they agreed and that was enough. That that got him going. And that was the beginning of the, the CS Wind Tower Empire. And this factory, this very large facility in Vietnam, which has grown many times since then in the city of Phu Mi, um, has become the, the sort of centre, the manufacturing centre of his project. And he has built factories around the world, including a facility in in Scotland. But there is this sense that most of the factories that he has built outside that big original one, which is still the core, have been built in order to um, to satisfy the demands of this or that country that the components for their wind farms should be built in those countries. And that takes you to the origins of the factory in Scotland. It goes back a long way. This area of the west coast of Scotland 
Argyle, the Kintyre Peninsula, which uh, for a long time has struggled to find jobs, employment for for people. Back in the 1960s, there was a coal mine that shut down in the area. Um, it was it was waterlogged. It was it was flooded, and it just became too expensive for the National Coal Board, as it was then, to keep it going. They closed it down. Um, around a hundred uh, miners lost their jobs, and there was concern within government agencies. We must find work for these people. So, efforts were made to encourage other industries to come. Uh, in the end, they built a shipyard to make trawlers, and for perhaps twenty years, the the shipyard flourished. But then, as a result of the decline of the fishing industry for various external reasons, that went belly up. And this shipyard, which had indeed employed some of those miners, then put another hundred odd industrial workers onto the jobs market. And and so the same versions of the uh, uh, of the government agencies were looking around for something new. And at this time, wind power was beginning to to become a thing in in Britain. And so between the wind developers and the government agencies supporting investment, they brought a Danish company in to build a wind factory in in Argyle. They worked for several years, then they couldn't make a go of it. Then another company came in, they worked for several years, they couldn't make a go of it. Then another company came in, they worked for several years, they couldn't make a go of it. You see a pattern here. And the last company to come in was CS Wind. They were the people who, who made the last effort and, and they tried to, with, with the cooperation of the big wind farm developers and manufacturers, they tried to scale up production to make these the much bigger and higher spec towers that are required for the tougher environment of of the North Sea. So you do see this incredibly long history where there's the, there are these kind of avatars of almost ghosts of 100 highland industrial workers that just shift from from mine to shipyard, from shipyard to wind tower factory, always conscientiously working, um, always trying to learn new skills, but never terribly high tech skills, and always helped along by well-meaning government interventions that are somehow not quite enough without the committed involvement of a locally based capitalist if you like it seems that to that the balance of what the state can do and what capital can do is somehow just not working in that place. So you did have a situation before the factory in uh, in Campbelltown finally closed its doors at, at the end of 2019. You did have a situation where this multinational CS Wind, this maker of of wind towers, had this uh, this global factory. Which, if you stand back and look at the reality of it, it is a single factory which happens to have one shop in Vietnam, one shop in Scotland, another shop in Taiwan, one in Malaysia. For a time, there was one in Canada as well. And yet, all the workers in all these different places have no real contact with each other. They're all doing the same thing. They're all doing the same job. They're all paid wildly different salaries. They all live in a wildly different social contexts in terms of the social protections they have from illness, from injury, uh, the, the social benefits they have in terms of education, healthcare, um, and um, social protection generally. The fantasy is that, that these are all separate factories, but in fact, they are all one company, um, all, I would argue, one factory. And uh, it, it's part of the, the strangeness of global consumer capitalism, that the managers of these enterprises uh, move so freely from place to place, and the, the profits flow so freely across borders. But there is just no contact, they're, they're hermetically sealed off from each other. Uh, the workers, they have no, they have no awareness, they have no desire, they have no interest, they have no consciousness uh, of the fact that they are part of this collective, which is divided against itself. Uh, and even 
competing against itself. Within a single factory, you have low-income country workers and high-income country workers invisibly at each other's throats. And presumably, I mean, some of the jobs, there's, I mean, you described earlier a bit the process of, of putting these things up. And those jobs, because that's happening in off the coast of Britain, those must be British workers who are doing those jobs, who are laying the foundations. And I mean, the people who used to build oil rigs now putting up wind farms absolutely yeah very much so i mean to be able to lay foundations and put up structures in the north sea you have to know how to build things in the middle of the north sea so very much so i mean you can come at this from all sorts of different angles and there is i think probably a a bit of a danger of making a, a fetish of factories and things that are made in factories because they are not only not the only jobs, but probably the minority of, of gainful employment that comes out of this uh, renewable energy transition. And I think it's fair to make a comparison with the North Sea oil arc in Britain and similar sort of energy arcs in, in other countries where in Britain they had this huge boom of North Sea oil, but they didn't make the rigs or only a few of them in Britain. And nor did they make or operate a lot of the highly specialised vessels that were involved in all the various early setting up of of these systems of of, of rigs and and pipelines. But a huge number of jobs did nonetheless come along with the industry in, as you say, maintenance, supply, operations, but also the kind of the the softer, more white-collar aspects of of research and uh, analysis and thinking up new ways to do things and planning. And yeah, a lot of pretty good, steady jobs will be created in Britain over and have been created in Britain over the next generation in terms of simply chugging out to these wind farms and, and maintaining them, making sure that they're, they're operating. But nothing like as many as there were with oil rig workers. The number of people you need to man an oil rig, you don't need as many people to man a wind farm, do you? It is a, a less labour-intensive business, yes. And, and you, you do also wonder that I think there's, there's also the question of, of who's in charge. I mean, a certain political tendency has constantly raised and banged on about sovereignty over the past 10 years in the context of Brexit. And it's somewhat naive, even to the point of infantile, to think of sovereignty purely in as a sort of political state matter. There's also the question of technological sovereignty, intellectual sovereignty, and sovereignty of control over industrial networks. And and in all those aspects, nothing has changed since Brexit. Um, Also, the government would certainly like it to. But I mean, within the context of of a free market global system, there's very little that you can that you can do to to change that. And and the the technological sovereignty where wind farms are concerned is very much with Germany, with with Denmark, with the United States, and with China. Um, and also with the Netherlands in terms of the, the the specialist the specialist vessels. Whereas with with the North Sea Oil, there were and are these big oil companies that are kind of nominally headquartered in Britain, uh, British Petroleum, BP, and, and and Shell. So so that's a change. There is no BP of wind, and it, it is interesting the international situation of the towers themselves because they 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 kind of move into a non sovereign area. Siemens, the the company that's installing these towers, has a base in Hull for its North Sea installations. Um, And when the the components are shipped in, they they never really enter Britain. They're in this uh, customs duty-free area. Um, so they're, they're completely outside the ambit of, of, of customs or Brexit or anything like that. They, they're just in this in this yard, which is outside the British customs regime. And then they are taken back out to sea again to be installed. So they sort of float free <laughs> of any national system of taxation in that sense. So they, they are, in a way, the ultimate symbols of, uh, of globalism. That question of, of being near to coal and that transition from coal to oil and now moving on to renewables, that one of the, there is an argument that there was a lot of pressure to move from coal to oil because coal was um, 
heavily dependent on the men who dug it out of the ground. That if you if you rely on coal, then you rely on coal miners, and that means that capital is more at the mercy of of organised labour. And one of the put the push to oil, according to one argument, after the Second World War was was to break that link because once you've sunk the well, the oil up to point pumps itself out of the ground, and you don't need you don't need the men. And then the movement from oil to renewables that seems even more so that you don't the wind farms out there in the sea and the the winds turning the turbines and the electricity is coming to land and obviously you do need people operating that system but you don't need the men on the rigs who if they down tools put you at a disadvantage so that the argument of your piece about the way that how do we have a, a green revolution or a green industrial revolution a green new deal and at the same time improve working conditions yes the i mean the my my point was in the end the sort of spine of the piece if you like was about this small wind tower factory in the remote from the rest of the country uh, west of scotland uh, which was at a strong disadvantage compared to the cheaper workforce and the cheaper materials in vietnam where in the end many of the the wind towers that are now being put in the uh, in the north sea are being built um, and and that factory to the extent it was built in the first place and to the extent it survived it was if you like the beneficiary of this rather shady and vague promise that wasn't really a promise of local jobs for for local workers um in exchange for foreign companies being able to build these build these wind farms um as it turned out these were not promises that were going to be kept and they also i feel gave the scots a greatly exaggerated view of the extent to which they had put scottish innovation uh, and research and cleverness if you like into the development of these systems in fact most of it was um was coming from from the danes and the Germans. But I think under, underneath that was a deeper question about what has happened to this energy transition. It began not that long ago within the, the lifetimes, the memories of, of quite young people as something that was sort of derided and, and mocked and a cranky preoccupation of, of, of sandal-wearing loons who thought that windmills could solve all our problems. And it's become, in, in this incredibly short space of time, it's now a huge corporate endeavour. And, and some of these, these people who were on the far-out fringes of kind of semi-science fiction, semi-commune ideas are now you know, flying business class around the world making deals. So in that sense, you could say it's been an extraordinary success. But, but what is the, the nature of that success, which, which now, you know, it's, it's very, very touch and go, but it's, it's possible we, we can see a possible future without reliance on fossil fuels, which is great. But the reason that's come about is because this very idealistic hope of um, rescuing humanity from, from climate disaster has been turned almost imperceptibly into a an enterprise of the global consumer capitalist system. It's taken an ideal and it's turned it into products, which people through governments uh, and sometimes people as individuals in terms of electric cars can buy and can feel good about it and can feel good about themselves. And that's not a thing that I'm going to, I'm going to criticise too, too strongly. But when you then look at some of the the darker corners of how the products that are enabling this are enabling it to be possible for us to transition to green energy without doubling the price of, of electricity. If you look at some of the ways that the workers in these Asian factories are being exploited in the context particularly of this, uh, this factory in Vietnam, working uh, 14 days every day, 12 hours, without a break, and not being paid very handsomely for this. I mean, in terms of comparison with, with other local factories, the pay is actually not bad, but it's still very low. And, and I think it has to be seen in the context of a, um, a lower standard of social support, such as we have in this country, in terms of state-funded education, state-funded medical care. Also, 
it's it's pretty clear that there has been in the past a fairly sloppy culture of health and safety at CS Wind generally, not just in Vietnam. And I, I think it, it's a marker of conditions at the factory um, and perhaps related to the fact that the workers are simply literally not getting enough sleep that they've had in the past 10 years, uh, they've had six deaths. And that's, that's a lot for a, for a factory, even, even a factory with, with a thousand workers. And I know that at least one of these deaths was caused when a worker was using a, a very powerful forklift truck to lift one of these hundred odd ton sections of, of wind tower off a paint roller. And it was not properly secured with the, with the hook on the end of the tube and a component called a paint ring on the end of a tube, a massive steel ring. It just fell off and it crushed the safety cage of the forklift and and killed him. And the particularly striking and troubling thing about this was that within a few months of this, a worker at the Scottish factory of CS Wind was sacked because he refused to do the thing that had killed this Vietnamese worker. The, the worker in Scotland and the worker in Vietnam, you know, they had absolutely no awareness that, that this kind of thing was going on. It may even be, um, also I rather doubt it, that the managers at, at each plant didn't see the connection. But I think there is a connection. It's, um, it's, it's cutting corners, it's sloppiness, it's seeing health and safety as some kind of abstract annoyance that is not really necessary and simply gets in the way of making the product, fulfilling your order and getting the money for the boss. One of the CS wind workers that, that Chima and I talked to was, was talking about how workers would often fall asleep while they were welding and their welding rod would just wander across the pipe. Uh, and they would then, if they weren't injured or burned, or even if they were, they would then have to spend hours scraping off the um, the kind of the random weld that their that sleeping hand had made. I mean, I think there's an important point to be made about these workers in in Vietnam and and who they are. They are, I think, as many as half of them at CS Wind come from this particular province in Vietnam. One of the poorest provinces in Vietnam called Nghe An, probably pronouncing it wrong. Um, but it's the same province from which those poor migrants came who died in, in the, the truck in, uh, in England, who were suffocated to death. So you're talking about a very um, unequal country in terms of um, opportunities and outcomes. And it does rather seem as if you have parts of Vietnam where people are thinking, hmm, shall I try and smug get smuggled into into Britain or or shall I go south to Phu Mi? And and it would be fascinating to know what actually informs those choices because you would think it's a no brainer. You would go south to Phu Mi where you hopefully can get a job in a factory. And the thing is that um, as hard as it might sound to the people listening to this podcast to do hard industrial labor for relatively low wages for 12 hours a day, day after day after day after day. It's money in your pocket. It's m so much better than you would get. It's more power. It's, it's just that, that power of the cash that you can use to bend the world a little bit your way when you've been helpless for, for so long because you, because you have nothing. So one of the obstacles to better conditions for the workers in Vietnam is the workers themselves. And if somebody came along and, and there were actually rumors amongst the workers while I was there that somebody was going to come along from CS Wind and say, well, actually, guys, we're going to cut overtime. We're going to cap it. You're not going to be allowed to work 12 hours a day anymore. You're all going to have to do maximum 10. Then they would see this not necessarily as better conditions, but less money. And I, I think that's that's always one of the the tensions in supposedly making life better for workers that they 
fear and it can easily be presented to them as, by unscrupulous employees as that any sort of um, seeming change for the better is, oh, it'll cost you your jobs or it'll cost you money. And presumably a similar story could be told about I don't know, lithium mining in Bolivia, for example, to provide the batteries for electric cars. I think there is that. Yes, absolutely. But I think there's also the interesting example of the, the solar panels and, and questions about how is it that China manages to make solar panels so cheaply, so cheaply as to have completely destroyed all solar panel production pretty much in, in, in the richer countries enabling this extraordinary spread of solar panels, not just in, in rich countries, but in, in poor countries as well, bringing light to Africa, you know, in a sense, is absolutely fantastic. But the question remains, how do they make them so so cheap? And it's striking that the sort of the point of attack by the critics of the cheapness of these solar panels is, oh, maybe they're made by uh, Uyghurs in slave labor camps in, in northwest China, which may well be the case. And those critics are right to raise those points. But I find it interesting that the point of attack is, is the human rights angle, as if to say, as long as they are allowed, um, as, as they are treated as well or as badly as other Chinese people, then everything is fine. It doesn't matter if they work uh, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. That's, that's okay. That's just capitalism. We could deal with that. And, and I don't think it is okay. And I think that should be factored in to our assessment of the actual cost of this transition. You think, well, there was, and for some people, for a few people, there still is, there is another cranky utopian ideal that people, working people, should not be shafted like this and that there must be a better way. Uh, why is it that this planet is able to take one ideal, one utopian idea of saving the climate and make that begin to be a reality and ignore, not only ignore another utopian idea of, of, of ending the setting of high-income country workers against low-income country workers, not only fail to end it, but actually use it to, to fulfill the, the previous utopia. And whether the right way to deal with this is simply to pay more for our electricity, our green electricity, and I suspect that that may be the right way, or whether it is to take off the table the possibility of having these brutally exploited workers and to thus force the companies who make these products to, uh, to use more automation in their in their businesses. But then people lose their jobs and you have people who say, well, better to work a 12-hour shift than for very little money than to do no work for no money at all. And, there, and, and the, the other question is, is there something that as consumers we can do anything about? Because it, well, you pay more for electricity. How do you ensure that that money gets, into the, gets to the workers and improving their health and safety and, and, and increasing their wages rather than going into the into the company's profits, the sort of the, the five day week and the and the eight the eight hour working day, or even longer than that, those rights, workers' rights, were won in the UK, for example, by workers organising, and they were able to withdraw their labour, and then the, the factory owners who depended on that had to had to bargain with them. But the difficulty here is how do you how do you, how do workers in in Kintyre, as it were, organised together with the workers in, in Pumi in Vietnam to, to down tools together. And that's the huge and apparently insurmountable problem. That is a huge and not necessarily insurmountable, but it is a, it is a huge problem. And I suppose, you know, I'm, I'm not a, um, a union organiser. I'm not an economist. I, I am simply raising the, the issue. But I think that is also important. And if you are asking the question, how can, I think it's Unite is the union, um, or, or was the union in the west of Scotland at, at this tower plant, how can the Unite union representing workers in the west of Scotland, how can they possibly cooperate, work together with actually two entirely different union setups uh, or workers' rights setups in this factory in 
in Vietnam, one which is the official union, which will not do anything, and the other which is just the workers themselves who occasionally get so angry that they do stage spontaneous walkouts and, and strikes. So what I'm saying is, if you're even raising that question, you are much further on, with all due respect, to unite than unite is, because they're not even raising that question. Uh, or if they are, though we haven't heard about it. If, if they're saying, we cannot possibly do this, it is still a stage further than not saying anything at all. In the same way as 20 years ago, 30 years ago, somebody might say, well, you know, of course, we'd love to phase out these coal-fired power stations. But how can we possibly? You, it's crazy. It's not. Are you, are you saying that we would, we would what, uh, say that we're going to phase out all petrol-driven cars by, I don't know, what, some mad date, 2035? You're out of your mind. It's, it's absolutely, it's a pipe dream. It's a fantasy. That kind of um, sequence hasn't even begun in terms of workers' rights. But there's another less perhaps palatable point about the plight of the, the workers in, in Vietnam, in, in, in Fumi, which is, should they be doing these jobs at all? And I, th I think another question that is not raised enough, and, and it's, of course, this sounds terribly arrogant to, to, to me, I, I completely outside the world of organized labor to sort of lay down lay down the law to organize labor. But I, I think it's, it's fair to, to, to raise the question. Uh, what is the end goal for organized labor? Is it to save your job at all costs and to have your job protected, hedge it round, fence it, and just make sure that you have good conditions and that your, uh, the wider society in which you're living treats you fairly compared to your bosses? Is that all? Or is it rather to, to look at the slightly bigger picture and say, well, actually, I would like everyone to have a better job. I would not like anyone to have to crawl around in the middle of a dark steel tube for hours on end, staring at a bright, stark, sparking rod when this is something that actually could be done by a machine and the ultimately cheaper less labor-intensive way of making it, the, the money saved by that, rather than going to the shareholders and to the increase in the number of, of, of golf clubs and, and, and yachts, could go to having better labor-intensive workplaces like schools and hospitals, which cannot be automated, and that labor shifts towards better jobs so there we are that's two utopian dreams for the price of one price of three in fact four for the price of, anyway you say and i mentioned the footnote to this new piece that pandemic restrictions meant you couldn't get to vietnam and earlier in the piece you described phoning a pub landlord on the humber to get a, a vicarious viewing of a ship carrying wind towers um to hull but you were in the before times, in, in February 2020, you, you drove to the entire peninsula to report on this piece in the way, in the sort of the old-fashioned way of going to places. And, and when the pandemic is finally over, assuming one day it will be, do you think you'll go back to the old way of reporting? Or, or to put that another way, what else do you think you could have got or would have liked to have got for this story if you had been able to travel to Vietnam or indeed to East Yorkshire? Yes, the whole thing has been... That's been very interesting in that sense. I mean, the the, the calling up the pub landlord to, to see that ship, that, that was more a logistical thing, which I might well have done in any circumstance. I can't be everywhere at once, especially when you're trying to wrangle a uh, a five-year-old with your partner. It's, uh, you know, it's, I, I did think of, of jumping into the car and zooming up to, to the Humber Estuary, but I just I just couldn't make it. So, so that was, in the end, quite a good way of, of doing it. When I started thinking about this story, I was actually thinking just about steel because um, you may remember a, an individual called Donald Trump who made these kind of steel trade wars between America and China one of the uh, one of his interests during his presidency. And there have been a lot of issues about will British steel plants survive globalization? Um, they having limped on for for so long. So I was quite interested. I was interested to see well, why is it so cheap in 
in China, the Chinese steel. What, what is it they're doing? So my original idea was to go to, to China and to write about cheap steel. But then in, in sort of looking at, at what they use this steel for, I came across the story of, of the of the tower plant in Campbelltown. So I, I became more interested in that. And it seemed like a, a sort of a more focused way of asking a similar question. Um, you know, what is it that's going on in one place that makes the product so much cheaper there? So yeah, this was back in and back in, in February, the plant just closed. I thought, okay, I've got to get there now and talk to 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 people while it's still fresh. So I went up there and that was so that was February last year, twenty twenty. So the kind of the first warnings of, of what was about to come were in the air. But you know, at that point and I certainly had no idea. I was just as stupid as everyone else. Um I didn't think that we could go the same way as as, as China. How how could I? How is this possible? We're Britain. Um so um so I went with the full intention of then going to Vietnam and the LRB kindly uh, said yes that's okay you can go to Vietnam and I I found a very good uh, researcher called Chi Mai who was willing to help me and then the borders closed uh, the pandemic struck I put the story in the back burner completely I wrote about different things and then this year I thought right I'm I'm going to go back to that story but I I can't go to Vietnam is it possible that I might be able to to do this remotely and and I mean it was something that I'd thought about before you know one of the reasons being that one's conscience is is pricked by these these long flights that you make to do reporting especially when you're um you know I flew to Vietnam to report on the climate emergency there's something not quite right about that and and uh I think you can get to Vietnam by train but it's a it's a 10-day journey there and another 10-day journey back so really, between the trans-Siberian quarantine, there's not much difference. Anyway, um, I had been thinking, and I continue to think about about the possibility of, sort of remote reporting. You know, can you in this internet age of of Zoom calls and streaming and and constant um, back and forth um, on on WhatsApp um, and and using your phone to to take and as many little films as you as you want and and then send them somebody on the other side of the world is, is it possible to use all these new tools to report remotely um i mean i'd even thought so this is certainly not what i did and there would be all sorts of sort of ethical problems involved but i mean i even thought about kind of having a sort of mule like system um whereby you would just sort of hang a, a camera on somebody and and a pair of earphones and sort of you know go there go there talk ask this question you know i mean it, that does seem difficult in all sorts of ways and um, so that never happened. But um, I thought, well, let's try this with this trip. I mean, even if I went, I would be quite dependent on Chi Mai for obviously for translation, but also for, you know, that uh, that kind of incredibly difficult. And access presumably is. Well, yes, access. But I mean, it's, what, what does access mean? I mean, it's it's that moment of breaking the ice, which is the hardest part I would say of of reporting, where you know from cold, you barge into the life of a complete stranger um, and ask them searching personal questions: How old are you? How much do you earn? When were you born? Who are you? And that's that's always difficult. You know, if 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 I had to go out of my house now and do a, a questionnaire uh, amongst the people of of Nunhead about what they thought about last night's football, it would still be difficult. So, you know, even if I'd gone to Vietnam, it would have been the um, the person who speaks the language and is of that country who kind of bears the brunt of that awkwardness. And, and in a way, it would have been even more awkward for her in a, you know, somewhat suspicious environment of like Vietnam where, where people are, are wary because it is an authoritarian country the, the security services are are quite omnipresent it's a one-party state and it, it's easier to to sack people with with impunity you know in this country it's almost impossible to talk to any kind of public official I mean you know never mind going to, to Vietnam try talking to the NHS uh, so it would have been even more difficult for her in a way if I had been standing next to her. Not only are you a complete stranger asking me these these strange questions, but there's a there's a foreigner 
standing over your shoulder. So it would have been difficult. But of course, I would rather have gone because then I would have been able to kind of take part in the conversation in a, in a different sort of way. And you know, spend a lot of time talking to people about their about their lives, about their background, having a, a proper conversation, not just the kind of um, hello, goodbye sort of chat. And also getting a sense of the way that all the little individual bits that you would see in a film or a photograph, that they all fit together, that the sounds, the smells. And I, I feared, and I was right to fear, that any attempt by me to use the kind of the information from remote reporting to kind of lend color to my finished piece would probably not really work just because I wasn't there. Um, and the readers, but before the readers, the editors would say, well, this doesn't read quite right because you weren't there, actually, James. So no matter how much Chimai may respond to your tedious questions about what it smells like uh, and what kind of food they were eating you know you weren't there so it's just it's not right so yeah there was quite a lot of finessing anyway I, I think it, it worked as well as one could have hoped I mean Chimai was brilliant she did make those those difficult introductions with um, some of the the Fumi workers she hung out in cafes it wasn't just like me saying okay go um, here's a list of questions speak to you in a week I mean, it was very, very close exchange of questions and, and responses um, and, and a discussion of what kind of things would be best to talk about. And, you know, I, I knew the things that I wanted to know. Um, and, and she told me things that I didn't know I wanted to know. And, uh, you know, I, I think she was, was bringing her experience and her knowledge of Vietnam. And I was perhaps, you know, I guess bringing my experience of going to a strange place, but also having been to a lot of other strange places and being able to being able to compare situations. So um, in the end, with with those those conversations with her interviews, with some a lot of films that she took, uh, the kind of film that you wouldn't take if the reporter was going by himself, just a really boring, like sort of drive by film of of the factory. There's no scandal. There's no horror. It's just to give an impression of what's what's really going on. Sometimes just confirming basic things like the factory is there. They have got towers. I mean, one of the advantages from a, a sort of research investigation point of view to the wind tower is that it's a, such a massive thing that it's it's always out there. You can't hide it. They're, they're out in the open. They're in, they're in lots on the backs of trucks and trailers. If, if they're on a ship, you can always see them because they're on the deck so it's it's you know probably of all the bits of the global supply chain it's it's the most exposed to the to the casual public view so with that um and um also you know we did try i mean it it didn't it wasn't quite as often as i'd hoped but we did try to do some sort of two-way situations where like for example i wanted to have a a kind of rolling impression uh, of what it was like in what passes for the center of town in in Fumi. So, you know, she put her earphones on, she she pointed her camera phone outwards. She called me up on on um FaceTime. So, we were able to talk to each other while I was sitting in London, she was in Vietnam. I mean, obviously, because the time difference, it meant that I, this was the small hours of the morning. She was able to talk to me. I was able to talk to her and I was able to see what she was seeing. So, you know, I could say, what's that? And and she could say, well, look over there. This is going on. And that was, you know, that was something. It, it's something certainly that you wouldn't have been able to do easily or cheaply, affordably, shall we say, even 10 years ago. And of course, doing all that, it was using equipment that was made in factories very similar to the ones in which you were you yes know. that's right absolutely absolutely yes um so uh so yeah that that in in the end i think i think it worked pretty well i mean it, it, i really wanted to because I, I did feel that i i had got an impression not just from from working with with chi mai but also from a lot of stuff that i i read about the city and, and its extraordinary growth in a very short period of time these very striking u.s military maps from the era of as the vietnamese call it the american war where 
you can see that the almost the entire area that is now covered with this vast industrial city was mangrove swamp. You know, one of the saddest aspects to this story is the destruction of the the environment, particularly these these rare mangrove swamps that has been involved in the in the construction of this city where these wind towers supposedly saving the planet are coming from. I mean, I should say that I I I can imagine bits of my article, bits of what I've been saying to you now could be taken out and used out of context to attack the spread of wind power or wind farms. And I'm I'm absolutely I'm absolutely against that because I'm I'm very very pro uh, wind power. I'm very. I think these wind, wind wind farms are great, and I I I would you know as many of them as possible, please. Because if we were building, if the UK were were building a new gas fired power, power stations, they'd probably be using oh, yeah. large bits of Absolutely. steel of stuff that was made in Vietnam. So it's not it's not the no. fact of wind farms no, 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 that no. makes the, the. I feel the point should be made. Sure. Although it just it it makes the the irony starker. Yes, but um, if it is an irony, I think there's some irony there. I think we can always find irony. You wrote a piece for CLRB in 2017 on the Cadbury's jobs that moved from England to Poland. The the jobs that moved from Kintyre to, to Vietnam, is that the same story or part of the same story? I think I think it is very much part of the same story of what you might call labour arbitrage, where on the face of it, you have low-wage economies taking jobs away from, from high-wage economies. But if you dig a little deeper, there's more to it than that. I mean, it's 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 difficult because it's a sign of the of, of the situation that there is a weak vocabulary in sort of common use to describe a situation where you live in a country which has pretty good state funded education and uh, state funded health services. Uh, there isn't a good set of words to describe that situation, which I think is is in itself a marker. Of, of the problem. But yes, it's, it's also about workers in, in Vietnam and Poland, in this case, in the case of the Cabris factory, kind of rising up, getting um, wealthier, um, getting better jobs, very, very hard working jobs, relatively low wage jobs compared to rich countries, but still better than they had before. But when there is the point of equalization, when the the poles reach a certain level and the british reach a certain level what is the what is the net end effect at the moment the net end effect seems to be that for most people if you look at the the whole picture not simply the spending power of the individual to be able to afford pizza and um netflix but if you look at the the power of a community to have the leveraged pooled power to build schools hospitals and to staff them which is the most expensive thing that's where everyone seems to settle at a lower level than where we were 20 years ago and that is a a troubling development because as that little bit of extra individual purchasing power has shifted to the new consumers of Poland and Vietnam. The extra money saved by the the shareholders who own these factories um, has gone not towards better communal services, but towards higher purchasing power for very rich individuals. So we see, you know, it's good times for pizzas and Netflix Good times for luxury yacht makers, not so good for good schools for everyone. James Meek, thank you very much. Thank you. You can read James Meek's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with Barbara Newman on Dante, Colin Burrow on William Empson, and Sheila Fitzpatrick on the parallel lives of a Soviet perfume and Chanel No. 5. <laughs>